You're listening to The Bookstorian Podcast, a podcast for book lovers and bookstagrammers. Hello and welcome to The Bookstorian Podcast. My name is Tegan and I am your host. Before I jump into this episode, I wanted to let you know that Lismore City Library is now accepting donations to replenish their collection after the recent flood event that devastated the entire city of Lismore earlier this month. You can donate funds, new or new new books to them. I have included the link in my show notes that details what you need to know before donating books and includes account details if you wish to donate tax-deductible funds. I'm sure every donation, big or small, will go a long way to helping them recover not only their collection, but also their spirits. On this episode of the podcast, I chat to Karen from at i.touch.myshelf. Karen and I chat about her bookstagram, including the name and how she came up with such a fantastic pun, and then talk about the performance by Claire Thomas. This is a fantastic Australian read, so if you haven't yet read it, I highly recommend you do so, and then come back and listen to the podcast, as this episode definitely contains some spoilers. Hello, Karen, and welcome to the Bookstorian Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tegan. I'm a bit, I'm a bit terrified, but yeah, looking forward to it. <laughs> oh, that's um, hopefully I, it won't be too scary for you, and you'll get to the point where you don't even know that I've hit the record button. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Filled with confidence, that laugh was. Yeah, I know. She probably, um, she probably should have had a drink or something. <laughs> Well, let's start with an icebreaker question and see if that calms your nerves a little bit. So my icebreaker question for you is, what was the last book you couldn't put down? Yeah, um, good question. I think the the last book that just, um, I I, I read compulsively and I read it in a few hours was um, Black and Blue by Veronica Gori. and yeah, it's it's just it's just an amazing book. So Veronica Gori is a um, Gunai Kornai woman um, based in Victoria, and the book is a, a memoir, um, and it's split into two parts. So black, and well, part one is black, and part part blue, part two is blue. Um, so um, in black, she talks about the effects of. Um, post-colonial intergenerational trauma um, on her family. So um, she starts off by talking about her grandparents, her grandmother on her um, father's side is one of the stolen generation. Um, And when she gave birth to Veronica Gori's father, she wasn't allowed to see him because she was unmarried. And, um, And that kind of starts a... I, I suppose that's as far back as Veronica Gori can um, track her, how intergenerational trauma has impacted her life. It's not until her father is four that they're reunited. Um, so um, in the rest of part one of the book, she um, talks about making sense of her identity as an Indigenous woman in Australia and all the baggage that that label carries just on its own, without the ongoing legacy of institutionalisation and violence in her family. 
Um, and then part two in blue, she talks about her time as a policewoman and one of the few Aboriginal policewomen in Queensland. And there are heaps of anecdotes about how difficult that was on its own, just, just being um, an Indigenous woman in the police force in Queensland um, is, is really, really difficult for her. And as much as she wanted to be part of the solution, to um, address the distrust between Indigenous communities and the Queensland Police Force. Um, she found that, you know, time and time again, that because the institution is so, um, has gender and gender discrimination and racism so deeply entrenched, it was basically impossible. Um, so there are some really heavy themes throughout, um, and a lot of the anecdotes are really difficult to read. But because the tone of the book is so is quite conversational and quite casual, um, and Gori is so candid, it's really easy to digest, and yeah, really really compelling. So I read that, you know, I think in September, and like I said, in a couple of hours, um, it was just so difficult to put down, um, even though there are some really difficult themes in it. And it certainly sounds like it's a book that stayed with you, like you've read it a number of months ago, but it's still something that you you haven't been able to get out of your head. Yeah, for sure. And it's something that I've brought into, um, into the class. I'm a secondary school teacher um, and I'm a history teacher. So one of the units, um, one of my favourite units to teach is uh, Rights and Freedoms um, of Indigenous people in Australia and talking about that. The, you know, the Indigenous movement for rights and freedoms and some of the anecdotes from the book is something that I've brought into the classroom just to, um, yeah, just, just to make things a bit more real for, for the kids, I guess. Yeah, certainly. And these, these sorts of books and these types of stories are so important, especially in a modern day Australia, for us to know what's happened and what's still happening within a variety of institutions. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, uh, the kids always react with, with shock. And I'm really lucky to be in a school where, where the kids are really quite politically engaged. And, um, you know, there are, there are quite a few activists amongst the senior history students that I teach as well. So, yeah, I feel like they've really connected to, to, some, of, to some of the parts of the book I've shared and, and some, some of the other anecdotes that I've shared from other books as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, uh, as we have been on school holidays, um, I have been reading a few uh, reads quite quickly. And the latest one that I couldn't put down was Dial A for Aunties by Jesse Sutanto. And I devoured it. Like I didn't think I was going to read it so quickly. I had just read Wild Places by Christian White and read that one in a day. So when I picked up Dial A for Aunties, I was like, okay, I'm going to go a bit slower. I don't need to read this as quickly. And I just wanted to see what happened in the story. So for those people who haven't already read it before, it uh, centers around Medi and her family. Now her family uh, primarily consists of her mother and her three aunties. And they also have a wedding business that they run together. 
And what essentially what ends up happening is the night before the wedding, Medi goes on a blind date that her mother has set up. Not well, <laughs> blind to her. <laughs> Not so that is blind my to worst you. Night. <laughs> <laughs> oh and my gosh. This isn't a spoiler because it does give it away on the blurb, but uh, she ends up murdering the the date. <laughs> oh, so. Yeah. I probably would. Anyone that my mother would set me up with, it'd probably be a nightmare. So, yeah. <laughs> I get it. I get it. So that happens. She, end up, she ends up murdering uh, the date. And then essentially the rest of the story is about her and also her mother and her aunties um, trying to hide this body or get rid of the body as well as uh, run one of the most expensive weddings that they've ever been in control of. So <laughs> it's fantastic. Like it, I'm so excited that it's a Netflix adaption. I think it would make a fantastic oh. adaption. And uh, there's also a sequel coming out as well um, in 2022. Interesting. I've seen that. I've seen that book a lot on Instagram and just, I don't know. I mean, I don't really read, would you, would you call it a thriller? Look, I don't. I think it's a bit of a hybrid because it feels a bit thriller in the fact that there's lots of little um, twists, like plot twists and cliffhangers. But there's also a bit of romance threaded within there as well, and like family drama. So it kind of blends a few different genres. Okay, I might have to pick that up because it's. It sounds like a really plot-driven yeah kind of book, which is not something I'm used to. Like I, I, I like reading about really broken people in books where nothing really happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it might be a good one to try over the holidays. Yeah, look, I suppose like <laughs> Medi herself, because we also have like flashbacks between, uh, flashbacks to her life um, with her previous boyfriend. And I've done that thing again, where you read a book and you've forgotten the characters' names. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, so there is also like a little bit of her past that exists within the story as well. And potentially... Um, yeah, like a bit of a broken person uh, when we do come across her um, or probably someone who was broken and who has healed and um, is is a bit more put together. But we see yeah. some of the things along the way. So definitely pick it up. It was, it was so worth the hype. It was worth it. Okay. 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 You might've convinced me. Cool. <laughs> I'm Excellent. still looking like that. I've got maybe three or four massive piles of books that I've yet to read that mock me every day. So (laughs) if I can squeeze it in, (laughs) I will. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. It's a good one. Um, So Karen, we both have the same issue where there is tons of books on our shelves to read, but we also have a bookstagram account. Well, we both have a bookstagram account. I should say your handle is at i.touch.myshelf. So can you describe your bookstagram feed for my listeners? Um, Indulgent. (laughs) Um, I basically started the account because I was just getting back into reading after several years away from it, um, you know, starting my career and and um, and things like that just meant that reading was very much on the back burner. Um, so I was just getting back into reading and I have a really terrible habit and it sounds like you too as well, where I forget something, or I forget what I've read as soon as I finished reading the book. Um, so I started taking photos of the books I had read and posting reviews on my personal Instagram account. Um, and none of my friends really 
read the same, they don't really read the same books I do. And I felt like I was screaming into the void a bit <laughs> when um, posting these reviews. And I was worried that I was probably annoying them with posts about books that they didn't care about or <laughs> they didn't want to see. So um, with a bit of encouragement from my partner, and a couple of my colleagues, um, yeah, I started a, a bookstagram account, not not knowing that there was this whole bookstagram community of which I'm I'm so so grateful to be a part now. Um, it's and it's just become a really wonderful hobby. Um, you know, keeping up with it and seeing what's out there, and it's changed. Um, I mean, I can't say that I read, oh, I do read a bit more now than I used to, which is great. Um, but I'm definitely exploring books that I wouldn't have before starting the account. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's been so much fun. And how long have I had the account now? Just over a year. I think it was October 2020 that I started it. Um, yeah, so I've just... I love having internet friends that I talk about things with and um, yeah, it's just, it's just really lovely to be, to feel so connected to this new community that I didn't realize existed. And I think that's usually something that most people will bring up in this conversation that I have with other bookstagrammers is that the community is fantastic. Like apart mm. from potentially, like I've shared a few people's, um, like posts occasionally I'll have someone say, Hey, could you not reshare my stuff? And it's like, Oh my goodness. Yes, of course. But they're always really nice about it. Um, mm. So it's, yeah, it's a beautiful community to be a part of. And I hope you don't mind. I'm going to read out what you have on your bio because I think it's fantastic. <laughs> so it says book reviews, white walls and my left arm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's I mean... not what you do. <laughs> Exactly right. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's minimal. Like if I were to sum up exactly, you know, what my account looks like, it, it's, it's, well, other people would say minimal, but it's definitely just laziness. <laughs> when I started the account, I think if you scroll down far enough, you'll see the first maybe like 10, 20 posts um, where I tried in vain to make them look a bit prettier and, you know, have like tried some flat lays and, and stuff like that. But um yeah, I just just kind of gave up, really. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I it gets so to be... hard. Like, it gets yes. really difficult. And especially if yeah. you're light, like, you have this small window of time where you have to take the photo and you have to exactly. have the ideas to do it. And, yeah, it's it's really difficult. And so props as well. Mm, props, Like, yeah. the props on, like, my apartment isn't big enough where I have, <laughs> like, heaps of places for nice backgrounds and stuff like that. Like, I see some other people's posts and I'm just like, wow, you're amazing that you <laughs> um, dedicate the time and the stuff. It's, I think it's, I think part of the reason I, I changed my aesthetic and just, um, and just started doing shots in front of a white wall by my dining table is because I was, I just couldn't be bothered with the cleanup afterwards. Um, so, and I never wanted to be one of those Instagram girlfriends that asked their partner to, <laughs> to take Instagram photos for them. So I just, so I just thought, what can I do by myself? That's easy that, um, that I can replicate over and over. And, um, yeah, so I've just been doing it that way ever since. And I'm basically just a one-shot wonder now. I do 
I just take the one photo um, in, in good light. As soon as the sun's out, um, I just, yeah, just take my one shot and, and that's it. What was born out of laziness, I think, has kind of become part of my brand, I guess. So, um, yeah, I don't plan on changing it anytime soon. And um, it means that I can spend more time on, on the reviews because that's what I think that's probably what I enjoy most, apart, apart from engaging with the community. And something also really unique about your brand is your ha- your Instagram handle. So how did you come up with it? Um, I just I workshops that with I think two of my two of my workmates um, just messaging back and forth one night on my couch when I was I, I toyed with the idea of the account for a couple of days and then I thought, you know what, let's just do it. I'm just going to do it. And then coming up with the name was probably the hardest part. Um, I thought of something rather benign <laughs> at first, like read with me or reading with Karen or something like that. And then I decided because um, <laughs> Karen, the name Karen doesn't mean the same as it used to. <laughs> Definitely not one of those Karens. Um, so um, yeah, I thought, a friend of mine suggested something, something punny and I'm, yeah, I'm not great with puns, but um, yeah, after coming up with a couple of different punny names that I can't even, I can't even remember what they were now, um, that were all taken. Um, yeah, I, I, I couldn't even tell you how I came across a touch my shelf. I think I was just thinking of shelf related shelf-related puns, and, yeah, that was just the one that we landed on. And I asked my colleagues, you know, what about I touch my shelf? And they went, gross, but it works. <laughs> and then I checked and it wasn't taken. So here we are. And I, I forget, sometimes I forget that that is, that is my handle until every now and then I get a message that or, or a comment on a post that's like, I love your handle, by the way. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right, because it's gross. <laughs> I, I always, always forget that I have it. Um, but, yeah, every now and then I just get that reminder from someone that's just like, love your handle or your handle made me laugh. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's great. It's a really easy, quick way to connect with people as well. Yeah, it stands out. And, um, yeah, it makes people giggle, which is good. Yeah, always. So what are some other bookstagram accounts that you really love and would like to give a shout out to? Yeah, the, the accounts that I love most tend to be um, run by people with whom I've had really good chats. So um, at carly.neil.edits is one of the first books to friends that I've made and we've talked about all sorts of things um, with each other without having actually met yet. It's, it's funny the amount, you're probably the first one I've met actually. Um, and I've had such good chats with people where we've just, you know, been typing back, back, back and forth for hours and I've not met any, any of them in person. Um, I pretty much get all of my book recommendations from at fee underscore reads. Um, and I came across her the first time because she, um, she does, um, fortnightly reviews on triple r which is a local or my favorite local melbourne 
radio station. Um, so yeah, she does those every couple of Tuesdays. And um, yeah, so that's the first time I came across her was on Triple R. And then when she followed me on books to on, on my bookstagram, I was like, oh my gosh, um, Fee thinks I'm cool. <laughs> um, and um, she reviews a book and then I pretty much go straight to um, the Brunswick Street bookstore, which is managed by at She Reads She Noms, um, which is an account run by Rachel. And pretty much everything they recommend I, I read. Um, same with at Jacqueline Krupe, who um, is one of the booksellers at Hill of Content, which is another indie bookstore in Melbourne that I love. And, and she's an author in her own right as well. I love at Justine the Wandering Reader, at Shay Ricky Reads, and at What Sarah's Reading Now, who have always been really wonderful and lovely and really supportive. Um, at Read by Says, she has my love of diverse authors and own, own voices, stories and feminism. So, um, yeah, so I love, I love having chats with her and I love, I love her account and the books that she recommends as well. Um, so, you know, prior to starting my bookstagram account, I was pretty much exclusively reading feminist or political nonfiction um, because I didn't think I was smart enough to get literary fiction. So being able to discuss books with people and read reviews, um, particularly from those accounts from people that I like and trust, has been awesome and, and so welcome given the need to escape into fiction the past couple of years. And I think it's also important to say that I, I believe both of us have got our recommendation for the performance by Claire Thomas from Sarah, from At What Sarah's Reading Now. It's pretty much exactly the first I heard of it was from Sarah and I thought, interesting, that sounds totally up my street. So, and you've had Sarah on before, haven't you? Yes. So Sarah's been on the podcast twice before. Um, and one of the episodes last year in April was for um, Aussie April. And Sarah talked about the performance by Claire Thomas. And beforehand I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't really know if it sounds like my kind of book. Um, and I'm a drama same. teacher, yeah. like who loves theatre. <laughs> so I don't really know why. But hearing her talk about it, I was like, okay, I've got to pick it up. And I think if not the day after, it might have only been two or three days after we had a, had a chat about it, I um, popped in to uh, Avid Reader and purchased it. So, um, so big shout out to Sarah for recommending this book to us both. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Erica. And we are Book Talk Podcast. We're two nerds. We read a lot of books. By normal standards and no books by bookstagram standards. And we have a lot of opinions by any standards. I don't know. I guess my like overarching philosophy is that we don't we don't really know ourselves until we get out of our own heads, until we see the world from other people's point of view. And it's only by learning more about ourselves and learning about each other and different experiences that we can be better people and be more well-rounded and empathetic. I think books help us do that. I think it can also be hard to have deep conversations with people about what you truly think about things when they're directly pertaining to you. And if you are reading a story about a third 
a third party or a third person, it can kind of give you the foundation to have those conversations with people and to connect on a deeper level without having to like make it about yourselves. It's kind of like a way to step back a little bit and, and to talk about things in a different way. Book Talk Podcast is your podcast book club that's here to help you read more, feel more, and connect with the community of other readers. It's hallucinating by looking at markings <laughs> on a piece of a dead tree. Collectively. It's magic. Whoa. Okay, we gotta be done. I think we've got it. <laughs> Cut. So let's have a chat about the performance by Claire Thomas. So a little bit of an overview about what the book is about. We have three women attending the theatre to see Happy Days by Samuel Beckett as a bushfire rages, rages outside of the city. The book is told from each of the women's perspective and it really goes along a journey with the play, like hand in hand, as where we start at the beginning of the play, the book ends when the play ends and everyone's filing out of their seats. And along the way, we learn about each of these women's lives. And we also learn about some of the resolutions that they hope to make in their own lives as well. So I think one of the most important questions to ask about this story is what did you think about the structure of the book? So in the fact that we see a switch in perspective from each of the women, but we also get a little scripted scene during interval, uh, which reads as if it's a play script, which is quite unique uh, within the story. So what did you think about it, Karen? I, I really enjoyed it. Um, although at face value, if you were like, if you were just just to describe the structure to me, um, it's probably something I wouldn't have wanted to pick up. Um, but I, I really enjoyed that when we're first introduced to each of the characters, each of the three characters, they aren't the most likable. So already box ticked for me. Um, and whose inner worlds become more apparent as they're trying to leave leave their inner worlds behind for whatever reason, whether it's um, to watch the play or to escape their own lives. And, you know, that seems to, it seems to switch between the two from minute to minute. Um, so, I mean, I've half watched so many films and TV shows because my butt was present <laughs> and on the seat, but my mind was in a hundred other places. So, um, this and the fact that they're all working women really spoke to me. Um, so, yeah, like I've said a number of times already, I love a book that explores inner worlds, that are, I love character-driven books, um, where it's a, uh, books that explore, um, you know, the kind of inner turmoil of a female, female character, which someone would traditionally consider unlikable or problematic. Um, and because the, the character development was so rich, it stopped the book from being too clever for its own good or being pretentious because sometimes, you know, like I said, if you just told me about the structure of the book, um, at face value, I would have thought, nah, because I feel like a lot of books that have really good ideas or interesting narrative structures don't really move beyond that idea. But because the, like I said, the character development is so rich, um, you know, it, it, it felt, it felt fresh and it, it didn't fall flat. So, um, 
yeah, so I, I really, really enjoyed the structure because it, it moved beyond the idea. And I think the structure definitely allowed for us to see a spread of women across different ages and backgrounds and demographic and sexual orientation. Like we had a really broad spectrum um, of females uh, who were visiting the theatre. In terms of the, like the structure, it was very similar to the pull of the stars in the fact that it was a large sort of stream of consciousness chapters where there wasn't really too much of a break like you flipped between each character and every single thought they had was included within the story it certainly meant that I had to pay a lot more attention to the novel as well like there wasn't time for you to to sort of tune out or to miss um, a sentence because you could then have switched between or into another character as well um, I really liked the interval script. I thought it was a mm. great way to break up the stream of consciousness. And um, look, this might go a little bit theatre, but hopefully because you're an English teacher, you're okay with it. But <laughs> I liked the idea that we were seeing these characters, their lives and their problems, but as if we were watching them on the stage. So it's similar to the idea of them watching Happy Days. We were then suddenly watching them as if it was a work of theatre. And it removed us um, as a reader mm. from the action. And instead of being in the heads of the characters, it actually reminded us that this novel was a work of fiction. So I thought that was a really clever way uh, for me as a, an audience member to, or a reader to step out of the head that I was in, because I quite yeah. often, even as a drama teacher, I don't think scripts are meant to be read. I think they're meant to be watched. We're not meant to sit down and, and engross ourselves in a play script. We're actually meant to watch it. So by removing me from the narrative of a, like, well, the stream of conscious narrative, it made me really self-aware of what I was actually reading and who I was reading about. Yeah, I, lo I loved the interval um, because, yeah, like you said, we kind of stepped out of the characters' inner worlds and saw how they interacted with each other. And, um, you know, the context or stage, if you will, was set for a super awkward <laughs> encounter um, or collision, I suppose, is a better way of describing it um, between each of the three characters. So, like, you could see, it was, it's like you could see a car crash that was going to happen from a mile away, but there was nothing you could do to stop it. Um, and that, um, like the first thing that, you know, Mar Margot, Ivy and Summer see when they go back to watch the second act is Winnie, you know, uh, so the main character in Happy Days, um, up to her neck in sand. And I just thought that was so clever because it mirrors the way they've, they would probably agonise about those interactions with each other. I mean, like, haven't we all wanted to get swallowed up by the ground after <laughs> after a really awful social encounter? Yes. <laughs> uh, so one of the most integral things about this book is the inclusion of Samuel Beckett's Happy Days. And mm -hmm. you certainly don't have to have read the play or watched the play to to understand this book. So if you are listening at the moment and going, oh, I don't know, this whole theatre thing isn't really for me, you don't have to have engaged with the play before to, to, yeah, to really understand what's happening to the characters and what's going on. So how did you feel about the inclusion of a play and the fact that that play also was in that chronological order throughout the duration of the novel? 
yeah, I thought it was a really interesting choice because the play just sounds really odd. <laughs> um, and obviously, I don't, I don't know anything else about, about Happy Days at all. Um, and yeah, like you said, not knowing the play, I don't think took anything, didn't took it, didn't take any and any of my enjoyment away from the book. But I do wonder how much more depth and understanding I'm missing because I because I don't know the play. Um, so I think it's interesting that as far as I'm aware, just from having read the book, that um, the main character from the play, Winnie, doesn't seem to address the fact that she's buried in sand or she, she doesn't, or even talk about that it's, that she thinks it's weird. Um, and she seems to still try to have a good time and reminisce about happier times, even though she's in a situation she won't explain, um, she can't seem to get help and she's slowly becoming more miserable, even though she's trying to make the best of it. So I think as Winnie is sinking deeper into the sand, the more each of the main characters of the book, Margot, Ivy and Summer, seem to be more overwhelmed by their inner thoughts and the more performative aspects of their lives. So I feel like their dread seems to mirror what's happening in the play. Did you, did you know the play beforehand? So I don't know this particular play, but I do know uh, Waiting for Godot, which is also uh, by Samuel Beckett. And the other one has escaped me that I've used before as well in class. Um, oh, it's going to annoy me now. That's always the way, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so essentially, like, I think the biggest thing to note about Samuel Beckett's works in particular is it's absurdist theatre. So absurdist theatre in itself is absurd it's probably the best way to describe it but it's this idea about having like existential crisis or questioning the meaning of life but the idea is is that with absurdist theater is that there's not meant to be any meaning behind it or any rhyme or reason behind why things happen it's quite often set in a like a dystopian world as well where a lot of things aren't explained and there's also elements of like vaudeville or humor um, embedded as well within um, his his works. Endgame was the other one that I was thinking of as well. Endgame is the other one that I am uh, familiar with. So it goes along those lines of the characters being like physically buried in sand, but not even really, um, like not even really acknowledging it or in waiting for Godot, like waiting for this being to turn up or this person to turn up. We don't actually know who Godot is um, and not actually ever finding out if he turns up. So I think that the idea of using an absurdist play has worked really well along the um, Summer and Ivy and Margot's storylines because they themselves are questioning things in their own life or potentially like questioning their own sort of sense of human existence as well. So yeah, they're, they're perfectly matched. Um, I think so. I, um, I also liked that we were immersed in the theater from the get-go like even those feelings of like slipping past other people and fighting someone for the armrest and then like hearing the echoes of coughs through the theater like the setting was beautifully created and and set up um i also thought that like i really liked how specific moments of the play also sparked memories 
for the readers, uh, for the viewers as well. Like I, it's such a clever idea to have characters sitting in a theater and watching a, a work of theater and then being prompted to think of different moments and memories in their own lives. It makes me really ponder how Claire Thomas wrote this, like whether or not she sat down and started with key moments of the play as her inspiration, um, whether she saw an adaption of Happy Days or read Happy Days and went, oh, I really want to create a, um, a book that or a novel that echoes the stories and sentiments, but for a modern audience. I have heard her speak on uh, the uh, reading literati. I'll find the link and, and pop it in the show notes as well. They had the performance as one of their monthly books and she did a, a Instagram live with them um, and spoke about a few things about the book as well. So I would highly recommend uh, giving that a listen, but that's the one question I would love to be answered that I, how did she actually start with the idea for the book? Yeah. And then um, it's, it's so, she does it so effectively as well. Like nothing feels contrived, does it? Like nothing's put in there just for the sake of being in there, for the sake of being clever. Everything's really considered and intentional and effective. And it's it's such a small book as well. I don't think that's something yeah. else that other people would realise. Like even though it's a, probably a, a, a quite a standard size paperback, the font itself is so large and the margins are, oh, the margins are probably quite normal, um, but the, the text itself. The spaces between the lines as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's actually not something that would take you very long at all to read. And I would actually suggest that reading this in quite a small space of time would be a good thing. It would be of benefit to the story. Um, and I think it's something I would love to reread maybe in a few years time when I haven't picked it up um, for a little while, I think would be a great book to reread and uh, soak back into it, especially if you just wanted something that might only last a day or two. Yeah, I agree. And I think the other reason is um, because you know, the, the three main characters are of different ages. Mm. I'd like to see, you know, how my relationship with each of those characters changes as I get older as well. So yeah, definitely one that I, I would like to revisit again. One of the issues that is explored within this book that I had never really come across before in a work of fiction was climate anxiety. How did you feel about the exploration in, of this issue in the text? Yeah, I think um, other than you know, the, other than the women reflecting on, you know, the performative aspects of their lives, it, the, the thing that struck me the most while I was reading the book was the vivid description of the Melbourne air and heat and atmosphere during a, during bushfire season. Um, I, I read this in the first half of this year and the memory of the smoke haze from the 2019, 2020 bushfires weighed really heavily while I was reading this book. Um, I remember being at home on a particular day in January, 2020, um, when I didn't, I remember, I, yeah, I just remember this day, I didn't want to look out the window because I remember in all the weather forecasts, everyone's saying that the smoke haze was going to be particularly bad on this day. 
Um, so I didn't want to look out the window to, to see the haze. Um, but I, I think I accidentally left one window in my flat open. And um, by about 10 a.m. I started to feel really sick and nauseated from the smoke and the smell. And I spent the rest of the day in bed trying to sleep it off. And the air just felt so toxic. And I remember spending that summer feeling just completely enraged by climate inaction because we're living like, I, I felt like I was breathing in the consequences of that and we're living that as we speak. So um, summer's insecurities really resonated with me in that way. Um, being raised as part of the generation who has had the privilege of an education um, that has had climate change embedded throughout has really made me question my own environmental impact on a daily, hourly basis. And I don't think it's a bad thing to have the environment be a factor in your decision making, but hearing the news reports about irreversible catastrophes and and leaders who are unwilling to lead on action makes it all feel really hopeless and therefore makes activism feel, at times feel cheap and performative. So um, there, there is a line from Margot that also struck a chord in the book where um, uh, Winnie in the play says, do you think the earth has lost its atmosphere? That's on page 213. Um, to which Margot basically blocks thoughts about climate change because she simply does not have the mental space for it, given everything else that's going on in her life. And that resonated with me as well. Um, you know, I kind of feel that way with COVID at the moment. Like, I mean, I wear a mask everywhere indoors. Um, even, I mean, I don't even know if I still have to or not, but I just can't hear any more news about it. You know, I just, I just can't engage with it anymore. So, um, yeah, so I suppose, yeah, the, I, I thought the exploration of climate anxiety that really, really resonated with me because, yeah, like I said, I am of that age where I'm just, where it's kind of been embedded in my consciousness. Um, and, yeah, I think we'll start to see a lot more of it come up in, in upcoming literature. And I certainly hope so, because I think that this is a really great way to not only um, educate people, but also to get people to think about the consequences of their actions. And there's a few books that I have read uh, during 2021 that, that certainly had that resonance with me. The Last Migration by Charlotte McConaughey is the other one that springs to mind. And I know that I've mentioned that on basically every recording of the podcast for this this um, season but it's just it's so important and it has has stuck and it's certainly not going anywhere I think you beautifully summed up that climate anxiety that summer felt um, as well as some of the other characters think thoughts and feelings on it as well so at the end of the novel we have a, a slightly um, powerful end where each of the characters seem a bit hopeful about what they want to do or change about their lives. Similar, I guess, to a bit of a New Year's resolution where they've mm -hmm. maybe sat with something for an hour or so and then they've decided to make a change within their lives. But do you think each of the characters kept the changes or resolutions that they were going to make in their lives at the end of the play and, well, at the end of the novel? 
Look, I, I want to say yes, but knowing that life is never quite that neat and tidy um, and that the, the interaction during the interval didn't seem cataclysmic enough to incite change, like real life change. Um, the answer that makes the most sense to me is no, um, except for Summer, uh, because Summer's partner is in immediate danger and her need to find out she's okay is so palpable. I feel that running out of work early is what anyone would do in that situation. Um, you know, just and hoping their employer would understand. So, um, yeah, I, I suppose that my simplest answer is is no. I just, yeah, it's just just like life just doesn't work that way. I don't think. I don't know. What did you think? I want to explore my observation about the idea that when we watch a piece of theatre, we will exit the theatre somewhat changed. So I thought that was really nicely explored in the performance. And look, this doesn't probably apply to um, every single work of theatre that you view, but for the majority or the most part, especially contemporary theatre, hopefully you are viewing or watching um, the work and come out somewhat changed. So I think that, yeah, this, this novel definitely summed that up. It also, another reflection I'd like to make is coming back to the idea of absurdism and uh, especially the concept of existentialism that exists within absurdist theatre is we reflect on our lives and we reflect on our choices and the things we might have or the things we should have done or should have said. And it also complements those devastation of the bushfires and natural disasters that were raging outside the city, that life still went on despite um, some of the tragedies that were happening around the city itself. Um, ending with the resolutions and the things that each of the characters wanted to change about their lives was certainly the perfect ending to tie in that existentialism or to tie in that feeling of change. But I, I agree with you. I don't think it always would have eventuated and potentially not for these characters either. I don't think mm -hmm. they held themselves to their, their resolutions. It, it, yeah, as you said, probably Summer, because it was quite immediate, the action she had to make. Whereas uh, with Margot and with Ivy, it was potentially not so, um, it was not so timely that they made the, the changes they wanted to make. Yeah, and I think... Um, like Ivy might very well have gone after Margot, called after her after coming out of the theatre, but whether or not that would have actually eventuated in a shift in their relationship or where they actually develop a personal relationship. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I don't think so, especially given Margot's feelings of shame around, you know, what's happening in her life and, um, how, how she feels she's she's part of the problem um or that or she she is the problem um so yeah i i don't know that that would have that that would have happened necessarily given you know given the way the characters were developed i just it doesn't seem likely but i do love an open ending Agonising about open endings like this is one of my favourite things to do. <laughs> yes, me too. I really do. I really do like an open ending. 
certainly. And it like, whilst you go, mm, is this a sequel? It didn't feel like the performance was written to have a sequel about it. Yeah, it was, it was open enough to feel, I mean, it was open enough that you asked lots of questions, but it definitely felt resolved. Yeah, certainly. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for joining me on the Bookstory podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much um, for having me. I'm, I'm still, yeah, well, I hope it was okay. <laughs> it was. Are you feeling less terrified now? Um, yeah, I think I can, I can relax and go, maybe go have that drink. <laughs> <laughs> and now a sweet treat just for you as you listen to the entire episode. Here is a little clip of what to expect in next week's podcast. And I really like anything about Penelope. Like I think she's... Me too. Yeah, she just... Like I think there's more there and I was really disappointed in how she was portrayed in the Odyssey. Like in the Odyssey, she's just portrayed as this like woman that just cried all the time. But I I think there's going to be so much more to her. Like she sat around waiting for her husband for 20 years. Like surely she's just not in there crying every day about it. Like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and yeah, and, and how Natalie Haynes goes in to talk about Penelope as well um, is quite interesting. You have been listening to the Bookstorian podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and follow me on Instagram at the Bookstorian podcast.